Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to ask you to go with me on a mental journey through the past. Let's do it. Okay, so I want to ask you to think about the evolution of technological civilization in terms of the human hand. Okay, well, that is the that's about the only model we have for the evolution of technologically advanced civilizations. So, yeah. So, so think, I'm totally down with it. Th- think about tool using intelligence, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, the earliest tools used by primates, our primate ancestors, the, the, the apes we call our cousins, they're all things that can be manipulated by the fingers. You had uh, the hand axes. I'm sure you've seen these things. They're oh, yeah. these uh, carved down stones, and there are different theories about what exactly they were used for. Were they for processing carcasses? Were they for throwing at prey or some combination? You know, were they just merely uh, useless status items, but they were these chipped stone tools used in the hand? And then, of course, we had handheld and thrown weapons, handheld tools for processing the carcasses of prey, like uh, stone cleavers. And then later on, you had tools for cooking and tools for farming and all just kind of a spiral staircase of technology revolving around the solid core of the shape of the human hand. Everything was based on the assumption of thumbs, palms, fingers. Even if you look at the beginnings of human culture, like if we go to the oldest examples of art we know, cave paintings show the use of hand prints, uh, pigments applied to cave walls by hand. And then I don't know if you've ever seen this, but finger fluting. Hmm. where it's not painting, but where Stone Age artists would make patterns in cave walls and uh, what used to be soft cave walls by dragging their fingers through the soft surfaces, which later hardened. And then, of course, some of the oldest known musical instruments appear to be paleolithic flutes made out of the bones of bears or vultures. So you get a bear bone, you bore some holes in it, and you could make a flute. And, of course, what do you do with those holes? You cover them with a fingertip to change the pitch of the note you're producing with the flute. So when you consider all this, and then, of course, coming all all the way up to our our steering wheels and our uh, gaming console controllers and every other thing you hold in your fingertips today, it's almost impossible to imagine the evolution of a technological civilization, an advanced, intelligent culture without hands. Uh, in fact, I think some would say that it was our primate hands that made this trajectory possible for our species. Like it was only the fact that humans went bipedal and started having free hands to work with that encouraged the development in the brain, the powerhouses for tool use and innovation that made us who we are today. But I want to think about what if evolution had gone a different way? Ah, so what if um, another uh, form of life on the planet uh, was managed to uh, ascend that staircase we mentioned earlier. What kind of but, tools would they have used? How would they have used them? Yeah, and that stair. So their spiral staircase might not have had hands. What if there was an advanced technological species on Earth, but not one that evolved from primates, and not even one that evolved from mammals? Is it possible to imagine a technological civilization built by the cousins? of birds in the same way we have one now built by the cousins of apes. Um, like where, where you've got highly intelligent 
cousins of pigeons conducting science and business and art and education in these huge technological monstrosities of cities while you've got monkeys scampering around in flocks throughout the uh, the city surfaces pecking around for crumbs. And every now and then you'd have a highly intelligent bird creature go out on its lunch break and feed the monkeys some some breadcrumbs. Yeah, or feed on the monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. Uh, because... Yeah, because this gets especially interesting when you, uh, when you, when you, when you look back, say about 50 million years, uh, to the, to the early, uh, Eocene epoch, and you'll find, uh, that this is the, this is the only time in history when birds ruled the world. Mm. They permeated most of the key positions on the food chain with a large flightless terror birds stalking the land. Terror birds. Terror birds. Yeah, so these are good. Massive, yeah, top predator. Just terrifying land birds, but I can imagine something like what if something like that had been the uh, the species that really took off, and maybe that was is what would live in these cities and eat the monkeys. But uh, but as for just birds in general, you know, why not? Why not the birds? Because birds are builders. Yeah, they build nests. Mm-hmm. They put them together. They're tool users, as we'll discuss. They exhibit social behavior, trickery. In some cases, startlingly complex social behavior. Yeah. So, you know, I can imagine on, on that end of things, I can imagine the bird brain being completely capable of ascending uh, in terms of manipulating objects. We'll certainly get more into the details in a bit, but I instantly think of some of the controls that we see uh, for uh, disabled individuals uh-huh. who do not have the use of their hands, uh, where they use uh, like a straw uh, to uh, to control the movements of, say, a wheelchair. Yeah, I can imagine. Technology like that being utilized by some sort of highly evolved bird creature. Yeah, and with the kind of intelligence that a highly advanced technological civilization would have, I wouldn't say that something like that is necessarily impossible. Uh, in fact, today, I think we want to make the case for why it's not completely insane to imagine a technological culture uh, in a hypothetical alternate universe built around the core of wings, beaks, and claws instead of fingers and thumbs and palms. Yeah, I don't think it's even a little bit insane. What it is, however, is it's a little more alien than even most of our science fiction dreamers want to want to want to play with. You know, we tend we were talking about this earlier. Even when you think of of alien species in science fiction that are avian, they're almost always the same sort of bird human hybrids that we've been dreaming about since, you know, since, you know, Babylonian days. Yeah. Uh, so w- I should say at the beginning that this episode was inspired when I saw a recently published paper. And this paper was called Cognition Without Cortex. And it was a review of recent findings on avian cognition and neuroanatomy, sort of uh, collecting all of the literature of recent decades, looking into how smart exactly are birds, what kind of cognitive traits and thinking do they exhibit and what are we learning uh what are we learning about how a bird's brain works and how that compares to the mammalian brain and so this paper was written by owner gunterkun and thomas bugniar and it was in trends in cognitive sciences published on march 1st 2016 well you know this uh this raises the question uh, joe what is your attitude towards birds what is your experience with the perception of bird intelligence. Well, I know exactly what it is because I've always thought 
that birds looked kind of dumb. You have. And I, <laughs> I have to admit it. I'm sorry now. I'm sorry now that I've read all this research, but I always looked at them and said, Oh man, there's something just kind of like an ancient emptiness in the eyes of a bird. And I was not alone in this because I, you may have heard this before, but I want to share it with you. A quote from the, the famous film director Werner Herzog. Ah, uh, yes. Speaking about chickens. Yes. Can you please do it in his voice? No, I can't do the accent, but I'm going to read his quote. Herzog says about chickens, the enormity of their flat brain, the enormity of their stupidity is just overwhelming. You have to do yourself a favor. When you're out in the countryside and you see chickens, try to look a chicken in the eye with great intensity and the intensity of stupidity that is looking back at you is just amazing. By the way, it's very easy to hypnotize a chicken. They're very prone to hypnosis. And in one or two films, I've actually shown that. <laughs> okay, so he's talking about chickens here. And I have heard from people who have raised chickens before. I think my my grandmother was very much in this boat that um, the chickens are, are stupid and a, and a pain to keep. And you, But chickens are just one of many, many species of well, bird out there. Yes, that's, that's true. There are, there are one subspecies. They're also, we should point out, domesticated. Yes. And there is often something that we see in biology that happens to domesticated animals. Animals that have kind of a cushy life where they're fed every day tend to not be quite so quick mm-hmm. in the, uh, in the thinking department as their wild cousins. But, uh, I don't know if that explains how people feel about chickens. Maybe chickens are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. But anyway, the conventional wisdom for a long time has been, in in sort of crude terms, birds are dumb. Birds are stupid uh, because they do not have the right kind of brain. Yeah, and I think a lot of this boils down to just basic perception. Like, my wife has often been kind of, like, freaked out by birds. And the way she uh, describes it is that she grew up around dogs. She grew up around horses. And she says that those animals are easier to read. You can, you can, you could get a better idea about what a dog is going to do. You can tell if a dog is aggravated, excited, what have you. A horse the same way. There are all these different cues that we can pick up on and really communicate facially with them. It's more difficult to do with a bird. And, and certainly the bird eye can just seem like a glassy, um, you know, a cavern of nothingness. I think of what Quint says in Jaws, uh, the shark's eyes. It's like a doll's eyes. Yeah, yeah, it, very much so. You get that kind of glassy doll's eye um, uh, um, impression from them. But, you know, I go to the zoo a lot with my, my son, and there are a lot of birds there. And some of them in particular, like the ground hornbill that they have there, uh, I'm just always startled by how intelligent they seem to be mm-hmm. and that I am I'm observing them, but they seem to be observing me almost in, on equal footing. So... In, in, in that area, I, I, I have to disagree with the perceived stupidity of the bird. Just talking about perceptions here at this point. Uh, but I think I would have to say that, that your wife's intuition about the, the sort of disconnectedness of the bird, the, the, the space between you does make sense from a biological perspective, uh, because there is a biological gap between humans and birds much larger than our gap, the gap between humans and other mammals. Uh, so you, the gap between humans and dogs is you're still both mammals. You right. have a much more recent common ancestor. The gap between primates like us and birds is ancient. Our last common ancestor with birds is believed to existed to have existed about 300 million years ago. Wow. 
We have not been related to birds since before the dinosaurs, way before the dinosaurs. It goes back, way back. These are, uh, these are just extremely different branches of the tree of life on earth. And so I think it makes sense to look on avian creatures with the, with the kind of hesitance. So there, there, there's an alien quality to it that's much like the quality, uh, of a reptile or a fish. They're just not much like us. Yeah, there's a definite alien quality to them. Uh, but I mentioned the conventional wisdom was that when people used to think all birds were really stupid. They thought that they were stupid because of how their brains were built. So wh- where does human intelligence come from? Wh- why are mammals smart? Typically, people look at the cortex. The The mammalian prefrontal cortex appears to be the seat of executive function. So all the thinking you do that involves conscious control of thought, like using working memory and constituting the planning and execution of actions, th- that that's cortex stuff. And so the old line of the of the neuroscientist or the neuroanatomist was uh, sort of that I can look at your brain and by looking at your brain, I can tell you how your thinking works, how your cognition works. And if you don't have a cortex, uh, you just don't have much cognition going on. I watched a presentation by owner Gunter Kuhn, and he called attention to the work of the uh, German neuroanatomist Ludwig Edinger, who lived uh, 1855 to 1918. And he said that Edinger was the leading comparative neuroanatomist of his time. Uh, and the, his project was sort of to understand the evolution of the brain in vertebrates. Vertebrates, all creatures that have a backbone. Um, so birds and mammals, both vertebrates. Where, where do the differences in brain evolution come along? And Edinger's theory was first you got fish and fish basically just have a spinal cord with a little, you got some brain stem on the end there. Fish don't have much going on brain wise. And then after that, you had amphibians, and and so they've got a, a part of the basal ganglia that's sort of a little bit extending what the brains are capable of. And then you've got reptiles, and this adds more to the basal ganglia, a second component of it, and you've, you've got slightly upgraded cognitive skills. And then after reptiles, you've got the fourth thing, which is birds, and then birds have... Uh, they sort of develop the basal ganglia, improve the skills more. And then finally, with mammals, you get the cerebral cortex, which gives them this unprecedented thinking power, intelligence, cognition, flexibility, the ability to uh, use their brains to adapt intelligence to all kinds of different scenarios. And so according to Edinger, you should look at a monkey and you should see cognition. It's behaviors that come out of thinking. It's not all just instinct. It's weakly determined by the genes. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, you should look at a bird like a pigeon that doesn't have a cortex and it should have a little bit of intelligence, but it's going to be a lot just instinct, you know, gene determined behaviors. Is that true? Well, on one hand, this gets into the whole idea of the sort of the ice cream scoop model of um, of neurophysiology, right? That humans have the most scoops of brain ice cream and therefore have the most powerful <laughs> brains. Yeah. But then also our, our understanding of how these brains are working has evolved somewhat over the years too. And we've been forced to sort of think, uh, think outside of the, uh, of our own, uh, uh, you know, anthropomorphic, uh, bias in terms of what constitutes intelligence. Yeah. And of course we've conducted plenty of experiments on top of that to really get down for, to take apart uh, intelligence, even human intelligence, for uh, divided into components that can then be tested for in other species. Yeah, and I think what we're learning in recent years over many experiments, this is not just like one experiment has changed the way we're thinking about this. There, there are 
so many more experiments than we could even talk about in this episode. Right. And the jury's that, out on, on many of these areas. Right. But th- there's so much new research showing that bird intelligence, bird cognition seems to go far beyond what was previously assumed that this old theory of the, the determination of cognition by the, uh, by the, the structure of the brain does seem to be flawed. It, it seems to be that this is not correct anymore because it was based on a false premise. Birds are much smarter than we thought. And some cultural traditions seem to have actually long associated birds like like corvids, which include crows, with higher brain function. I, I know we came across this uh, this great Norse myth, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Hugin and Munin. Those are Odin's ravens. Yeah. Companions. Uh, he also had some uh, some lupine companions, uh, Gary and Frecky. Um, <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about... They sound like fraggle names. Yeah, they do kind of. Uh, the interesting thing about Hugin and Munin, I also think of, and maybe they were, but Hugin and Munin also sound like they should be uh, like the, the host characters in uh, like an old horror comic, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, they should be chatting with each other. Maybe I'm directly, maybe they were. I don't know. Someone will have to um, fill me in on that. But uh, they not only are they Odin's companions, they are a part of him. They are his thoughts and memories, respectively. Yeah. And so, some argue that Munin is actually desire rather than memory. But essentially, the idea here is that Hugin, uh, Hugin represents the thoughts of Odin. Munin represents the memories. Oh, man. That's yeah. too cool because they're, they're embodied cognition, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, here's a little, uh, little bit of... Uh, Old Norse uh, <laughs> that has been uh, translated that tells you a little bit about a uh, Hugin and Moonin, and this is apparent. This is supposed to be from Odin himself. Hugin and Moonin fly every day over the world. I worry for Hugin that he might not return, but I worry more for Moonin. <laughs> oh well, that if you interpret Moonin to mean memory, yeah. that's uh, that's kind of a bittersweet fact about the loss of memories into time. Yeah, that these are just. They're, they're birds that are out there in the world and hey, one day, one or both of them may not come back. And, and it's interesting too, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but, um, you apparently don't see animals playing a huge role in old English, uh, Norse, uh, heroic literature, except in the case of certain carrion animals, the huh. beasts of battle, like the wolf, uh, which we mentioned earlier, Gary, Frecky, the eagle, the raven, uh, so it's interesting to think about these are the animals that fed on the battlefield dead, and therefore they have some sort of privileged status wow. symbolically. That's weird. One might think that that would make them taboo or something like that, but instead it elevates them to the to being uh, the stuff of myth. Yeah, I mean, it. You certainly we see we see some of that in other cultures, but um, yeah, I haven't looked into it as much in term in in terms of Western culture, because uh, for instance, the, the you know vultures have elevated status uh, in Tibetan mythology because they're closer to the sky and they are involved in the the rites of death. But uh, right, the but, yeah. sky burials, yeah, yeah sky burials. Right. Well, I think it's time to actually look at some of these studies of of avian cognition, of exactly what bird brains are capable of in practice. And the to summarize recent discoveries, we'll get into the details in a moment. But basically what we have found, uh, what scientists have found, is that some birds like parrots, uh, and that, that would mean birds of the order cetaciforms that include true parrots, cockatoos, and New Zealand parrots, uh, and then also corvids, which are birds of the family corvidae, and that would include crows, ravens, rooks, magpies, chuffs, jays, and nutcrackers. The, these bird groups display cognition on par with primates, which means primates, of course, being the order containing monkeys and apes like us. Yeah. So... On par with primates, seriously. 
and just just allow us to demonstrate uh, with a selection of findings. What we are talking about is mental time travel. Yes, also known as chronesthesia, if you want to be fancy about it. Now, th- this is sort of, so- it's something that you take for granted. It comes very easy to uh, advanced primates like humans, but it- it's just being able to travel back and forth along a mental timeline. Yeah, it's the ability to entertain alternate future scenarios. You know, you tell a creature weighs option A versus option B. It's how you're able to remember past events and anticipate and plan for future events. Uh, and that ability is core to so much of human experience. You know, our ability to or or um, our flaw in being able to just uh, regret the past, worry over the future, the entire wheel of suffering. It's a very human thing. It's yeah, and it seems very easy to assume that because you look at the behavior of most animals, and they really do seem to live in the present moment. They they don't right. seem to be able to uh, consider a hypothetical. Yeah, or, unless we're projecting it on them, right? The case of, especially in the case of our pets. Uh, but yeah, so is it present in animals? It de- kind of depends on who you ask. Yeah. Uh, some say no, not at all. You mean um, even some scientists? It's not yes. just like a popular. No, no, no. Theory. If you just ask people, I have a feeling they are going to. Yeah, they're going to be. It's, you're going to get a projection mm-hmm. uh, concerning the animals that we think we we understand the most and that we can read more easily. But with with scientists, yeah, it uh, depends. A December 2015 paper published in Neuroscience and Behavioral Reviews titled. Mental time travel, an exclusively human capacity. <laughs> it lets you know where they stand. Yeah, it it argues exactly that, 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 quote, some animals indeed appear to possess episodic memory. There is, however, no evidence that they are able to construct, reflect, and compare different future scenarios like humans are. Okay, so episodic memory, that just means uh, having sort of not ingrained how it always was or learned behaviors from the past, but being able to recall a specific instance. Right. Like if you can remember what you had for lunch yesterday, that's an episodic memory. And some evidence shows that some animals have this. But right. they're saying that they can't they can't project thoughts into the future. Right. Like it's one thing to remember what's happened, but then can you anticipate future events and plan around them? But not all scientists agree with this conclusion. That's right. Um, so back in 2007 or so, uh, Nicola Clayton of the University of Cambridge argued that scrub jays, which is a species of large brained crow, exhibit mental time travel. And then in 2011, there's an interesting study. Uh, from uh, Corina Logan of the University of Cambridge and uh, Sean O'Donnell of the University of Washington, and they argued that this mental time travel is demonstrated in certain tropical birds who engage in bivouac, those uh, temporary ant nest sites checking, bivouac yeah. checking. So basically... The idea here is that the uh, ants, the ant colonies are moving around. They have uh, uh, like a, a cyclical raid cycle that they go through. They have patterns of activity. Exactly. And so the animals hunting them, in this case the birds, they have to figure out how to anticipate those movements. The birds keep track of where the ants are. They remember their past movements. And according to the re- these researchers, they're actually using that data to anticipate future movements of the ants. So they'll know where to go to score their meal. Okay, so mental time travel in birds, uh, that seems to be a toss-up. Some say, some scientists say yes, some say no, but e- either way, it's an interesting lead for, for continuing research. But there's one area where we can see birds excelling in higher cognitive function where there is no doubt whatsoever, and that's in tool use. 
Bird, right. Birds are freakishly handy. That's right. There are a number of examples of, uh, of tool use in, in birds, some more complex than others. Uh, for instance, Egyptian vultures use uh, stones as tools to, to bust open ostrich eggs. That's great. Yeah. There are um, uh, also that you have like the brush turkey builds. This is rather simple. Builds a gigantic mound of soil and decaying vegetation to lay their eggs in. But then they'll kick the garbage at enemies to drive them away. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Wait, what are their enemies? Uh, things like monitor lizards. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. So they're, they're kicking garbage at monitor lizards. Yeah. It's like, like I say, this is very basic tool use. It's like, but yeah, kicking rubbish, you're still making a tool out of something in your environment. Yeah. Trash um, soccer. Yeah. Now, one of the more, uh, elaborate examples here, you have the woodpecker finch, which is one of Darwin's finches uh, from uh, the Galapagos Islands. Cool. It uses cactus spines or wooden splinters to dig grubs or other insects out of holes in wood. So, in other words, it obtains its food in the same manner as a woodpecker, but it hasn't evolved the necessary long tongue to scoop them out. Uh, so it goes, it breaks off something sharp to get in there, and it may even trim the twig. And this is key because there are other examples of animals that say, like, use a muscle shell fragment to hammer open another muscle or use a piece of bark to pry a, another piece of bark off. We've all engaged, well, not we, we haven't all, but if you've ever used part of a crab claw to dig out crab meat, you've engaged in like this level of simple tool use. Uh huh. Which shouldn't be discounted. I mean, even that's impressive. Yeah, tool that is use. still impressive tool use. But it goes beyond that. Right. Uh, cause they are actually trimming the twig. You're talking about these finches. These finches. They're trimming the twig. They're, they're manufacturing a tool. So they're, they're going from what's called a nature fact to an artifact. A yeah. nature fact is finding something in the world and using it as is. Okay. But the artifact, you're transforming it into a tool. Yeah. So that's sort of the difference between a rock and a hand axe. Yeah. So if you've got an ancient, uh, ancient primate who has managed to hunt down and kill a piece of prey, a large animal, and it wants to process the carcass to get some meat off of it, it could just pick up a kind of flat rock and use that for help. That would be a nature fact. Or it could chip down a rock until it's got a sharper edge. That's an artifact. Exactly. And just to put this, uh, you know, within a framework of human tool use, there are four levels of artifact tool use. There's reduction. That's where you reduce the mass of functional uh, of the functional form. So you're okay. chewing the stick down, yeah. stripping the bark, etc. That's what we just talked. Yeah, about. Yeah, that's what we definitely see in birds. Uh, then there's level two conjunction. That's combining two or more units to make a tool. This is like a flint-headed spear or a hafted axe. Uh, number three is replication. That's conjunction, but with two or more fam- uh, similar units required. So a double pronged fishing spear or a trident. Yeah. And number four is linkage. That's physically distinct objects in combination, like a bow and arrow. Mm. Obviously, we're not going to see a bow and arrow with birds here today. Now, would a sling count as linkage? Hmm. Yes, I think it would. Yeah. Yeah. You have two distinct objects that are coming together to make something, uh, uh, even even more uh, powerful, you know. Yeah, but some some of the tool use you see in birds is really the word I would use is disturbing. I don't mean to give it a <laughs> negative quality, but it it's kind it, it's unsettling when you see it. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking disturbing, uh, the shrikes have always uh, inspired a certain amount of terror. These are the these little birds uh, impale the bodies of insects and small vertebrates on thorns, partially for storage, but also just so they can better strip them apart as they you know, decide to eat them. Oh, so it's like a leather face putting yeah. somebody on a hook. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's like sometimes they're called butcher birds for this very reason, because wow. it's like putting them on a butcher's hook. That's messed up. Now, crows and ravens. I'm that, sorry. Let, let, let me let me take the judgment off of that. That's <laughs> nature. 
Yes, that's nature. Um, and, and yeah, so there's nothing wrong with Leatherface. Uh, crows and ravens. Uh, this is where we see some, some wonderful tool uses where, well, crows have demonstrated tool use and even the creation of artifacts. They've been observed to fashion tools from twigs to fish beetle larvae out of logs. Uh-huh. And in lab environments, they've been observed to use one tool to make another tool. Now, so, th- this is weird. Yeah. Okay? This is not just using a tool to get the thing they want, but crafting tools, like uh, using one tool to craft a second tool, which is like a whole other layer of abstract thought. Yeah, indeed. Uh, specifically, the crow in question uh, in this uh, one study bent the end of a wire using the edge of a glass then used the hooked wire to retrieve another stick, which was long enough to reach some food that it wanted. Wow. Uh, so those different steps there in tool use and cognition, uh, that's pretty advanced. It seems like something some people wouldn't be able to figure out how to do. Yeah. I kind of imagine myself in, in the lab trying to do some problem-solving puzzle and just <laughs> failing. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of steps that you can imagine just an individual on the street going through if they drop their keys down a sewer grate and they mm-hmm. see them. And they're like, how am I going to get that back? All right, well, what's around me? Is there a coat hanger I can get a hold of? Is there some other, you know, we begin to go through these these sort of basic tool use steps to do something we we normally don't have to engage in. But some of these steps really do involve very strange ideas of of uh, the, the abstract conditionals of how to manipulate your environment. Like one of the examples would be displacement of water. This oh, is yeah. something that's been observed in those New Caledonian crows. Uh, N- New Caledonian crows have been documented to uh, – so, so you've got a tube mm-hmm. and it's got some water in it. And floating on the top of the water – is a yummy piece of food that the crow wants, but it's down in the tube and it can't reach it. So the crows figure out to drop rocks or heavy objects into the water to raise the water level to fish out the piece of food. It that That's, again, something that I wonder if I would think to do. Well, I mean, it, it reminds me, of course, of uh, Aesop's fable. Of the crow in the pitcher. Like right. that just goes right back to some of our oldest tales uh, in which the crow is thirsty and has to drop pebbles into the pitcher to raise the water level enough to drink from it. Yeah. So we've been observing this for, for ages, I imagine. And in fact, I think there was a study we came across just this month that was looking at the uh, evolution of the beak of the new Caledonian crow, uh, essentially saying it had evolved for tool use, right? Yeah, um, I should mention that they that we've also observed the new Caledonia crows uh, forming beetle hooks from the barbed edges of wide leaves. And in fact, uh, these uh, Cornell researchers in this recent study, they used shape analysis and uh, CT scanning to compare the shape and structure of the new Caledonian crow's bill, and they found the unique bill contributes to the bird's ability to use and probably make tools specialized for tool manipulation. Okay, so it's not just the brain, but the the crow is so specialized for being a technological creature that it has evolved other body parts to aid in the creation yes. of technology. And this is where it gets interesting because it brings us back to our original uh, ponderings about the possibility of avian evolution to a, a you know technological state. Yeah, it makes me think about if we were to really commit to this speculation about uh, if birds became the ascendant intelligent species on a planet, uh, what would their technology look like? And I wonder if instead of every object being shaped around the human hand, if you'd have all these objects shaped around these specialized types of beaks, yeah. what would that look like? How would pe- how would they control their technology? How would they hold things? How would they control uh, all of the aspects of their environment with a beak? Yeah, because you would sort of be talking about the like the the end result 
of, of, you know, just, just ages and ages of stick manipulation by beak. Mm-hmm. Like what is the, like what's the optimal form of that? It's so different than what we have to work with in terms of thinking about, uh, the, the human hand and tool use as, as humans appreciate it. There's another thing that some studies have found birds can do that even some humans struggle with, and that's delay of gratification. Ah, yes. So I'm, I'm sure you've seen these studies before, like, uh, uh, a kid is given the opportunity to have, they put a marshmallow. Oh, yes, the, the marshmallow test. And yes. say, if you can resist eating this marshmallow for five minutes, you'll get two marshmallows. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll get more. You'll get a better reward if you can just wait a little bit. Animals are not good at this task. Animals are not good at practicing restraint. They can't delay gratification. If you put food in front of them, typically they're just going to eat it. Um, but some, in some cases, animals can be trained not to do this, especially some higher function, higher cognitive functioning animals like primates and in some cases like birds. Uh, so there was one paper I came across that talked about how goffin cockatoos were, uh, they were essentially able to wait up to about 80 seconds for food of a preferred quality. Uh, but less time for a higher quantity. And this was something that was also found in a study I read about corvids waiting for food. They can delay gratification for longer, or in some cases, they can only delay gratification at all if they're anticipating getting a better piece of food, but not if they're anticipating getting more food, which is interesting to me. Like, they'll they'll pay up in waiting time for quality, but not for quantity. Hmm, okay. It's, it's weird. Anytime I, I think about this scenario... Or any of these scenarios involving crows eating, I just think of them like picking at corpses, uh, uh-huh. in like a medieval setting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it makes you think like, so what's the equivalent in the, uh, uh of the quality versus quantity fact in like the marsh- marshmallow experiment? So it would be like the kid is given a marshmallow and then it's instead of you'll get two marshmallows, you'll get, I don't know, what's better than a marshmallow? Um, a human eyeball. Yeah, human eyeball. Yeah. I, I just assume that is the ultimate treat. To chocolate covered eyeball. No, no, a huge, a piece of chocolate cake or something yeah. like a much improved object overall. And so crows know quality when they see it. Yeah. And so do cockatoos. It's time to hold the mirror up to uh, avian cognition because uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mirror self recognition tests or MSR. This is one of the most interesting of these examples to me because it, it deals with not just uh, thinking about how to solve a task, but s- something that's a kind of a different issue, which is self-awareness. Yeah. And uh, and this is something we, we could easily do an entire episode on the mirror test. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's oh, one I of think the, we should. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the more common consciousness tests that we roll out with other species. And there's certainly some species that it, it works better with. There are other things like the octopus where uh, th- there are often difficulties in, in, in trying to make this test applicable to uh to those two members of that species uh-huh. uh, but essentially when presented with a mirror's reflection of themselves how is the creature going to respond is it going to respond as if there's nothing there at all is are they going to respond as if oh there's another there's another dog there's another fish uh right there looking at me i better react accordingly yeah. or are they going to recognize that that is themselves are they going to look in the mirror and see themselves and know it to be themselves. Which is sort of a, a, a holy grail of self-recognition intelligence. Right. Like, what a, what a strange thing to be encouraged by nature. Why would nature select for the ability to be able to recognize yourself in a reflective surface? 
I mean, uh, it just does seem like a ver- an inherently very complex thing for a brain to do. Yeah, I mean, it ties into your ability to to recognize your own place within a scenario, within a social structure. And then it also bleeds over into some other uh, cognitive abilities we're going to discuss in a bit uh, concerning not only how we perceive ourselves, but how we perceive others. Now, for those creatures that do react with hostility when they see their own reflection in a mirror, they may actually be on to something. Oh, yeah. It, if, in fact, uh, Jorge Luis Borges' uh, rainbow fish story is true, uh, if, if you're not familiar with this one, um, it has to do with the fact that um, that everything you see in the mirror, that the mirror people, the mirror creatures are merely repeating our actions. And they look like they look like us and they, they go through this uh, silly mimicry because they lost a war ages ago. And part of the truce <laughs> is that they have to just mime everything we do. But that but one day they will rebel against us. And the first thing we'll see in the mirror is the brilliant rainbow fish with, you know, colors that we've never seen in this world. That'll be the sign that, oops, it's about it's about to, to go nuts here and the mirror world is about to invade ours. So maybe the uh, the creatures uh, that, that that howl and bark at the mirror, uh, maybe they just know what's up. Well, I look forward to that day of reckoning. <laughs> now, what animals that we know of other than humans can actually pass the mirror test? Wh- which ones can look in a mirror and say, hey, that's me? All right. Well, as of 2016, aside from humans, you have uh, certain great apes, you have uh, apparently a single uh, Asian elephant. They're dolphins, orcas, uh, the Eurasian magpie, um, a few species of ants, interestingly enough. What? Yeah, and that's something we'll, we'll have to explore that in a, in a later episode. But there, there's an argument that ants can pass the mirror test. Uh, I have some questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, as well as macaques uh, have also passed uh, the MSR test. macaques, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and so one example I've seen, you might be wondering, well, how can you test to see if an animal recognizes itself in the mirror? One example that I saw that was actually uh, presented by Professor Gunter Kuhn mm-hmm. was an example where they have a magpie looking in a mirror. Right. And there is a, a sort of dot of colored dye on the magpie's feathers underneath the head, where it wouldn't be able to see on itself, but it could see in a mirror. Right. And they try it with a couple colors of dyes. One is a black colored dye that just matches the color of the feathers, so it shouldn't be able to see it in the mirror. And sure enough, they put a magpie in a room with a black colored dye under its chin, and it doesn't seem to do anything unusual. But they do the same thing with a yellow colored dye and the magpie starts scratching at itself. It mm-hmm. looks in the mirror, sees that it has a yellow patch underneath its neck and it starts scratching at the patch trying to get it off. Now they, they use the black colored dye as a, you know, control to show that, okay, it's not just feeling something on itself. It's reacting to what it sees and it sees it in the mirror and says, I need to get that off me. Yes, and forms of this this uh, this ink method are are utilized with uh, a number of MSR tests, particularly those aimed at at land based animals. Yeah, and when it comes to other birds, a handful of species show uh, self contingent behaviors in front of mirrors. Uh, magpies and jackdaws uh, they show self contingent behaviors. Uh, two out of five magpies pass the mirror test. Uh, New Caledonian crows, gray parrots, and keys engage in social behavior and mirror-directed uh, exploratory behavior, but they lack self-directed behavior in front of mirrors. Huh. And New Caledonian crows and gray parrots, all, parrots also use a mirror uh, instrumentally to localize food. So they can, uh, in these tests, they will, they'll put them in a position where they, they can 
use the mirror to better find the food, and then they will utilize the mirror to do so. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so I got another one for you. How about some bird math? Oh, yes. It's not going to be very complex math, but it's math that's that's impressive for a non-human animal. So lots of animals can do some basic form of counting objects, and I, I want to emphasize basic. But far fewer animals can do more abstract operations with number concepts, like comparing numbers and stuff like that. But back in the 1990s, scientists were able to successfully train rhesus monkeys to do this test where they'd look at a group of objects on a computer screen, and then they'd rank the groups according to how many objects were on the screen. And so uh, a group of three objects is greater than a group of tr- of two. And then after this training, the monkeys learned how to do this task even when they were presented with unfamiliar large numbers. So let's say they've been trained to point out that three is more than two and two is more than one. You can suddenly show them new numbers they've never seen before, like eight and six, and they'll do the test correctly. They'll point out that eight is more than six. So basically checking for algorithmic thinking on the part of the animal. Like yeah. they sort of deal with, with quantities, visual quantities and tell yeah. the difference. And, and tell, yeah, exactly. And so there was a study in 2011 published in Science by Damien Scarf, Harlan Hayne, and Michael Colombo that essentially found that pigeons, pigeons now, the, the classic dummies of our, our jokes about bird intelligence, <laughs> did just as good as rhesus monkeys on this test. Uh, that birds do the, the operation of magnitude comparison just as well as primates. And the setup goes like this. You get the birds and you train them over time to peck at screens bearing numbers of objects in increasing order of magnitude. So for the pigeon sees three screens. One has one object, one has two objects, one has three objects, and you train the bird with reinforcement to peck them at going one, two, three. Then... You introduce new numbers, just like you did for the rhesus monkeys, and they can do the same thing. They can look at six and nine and and can peck them in ascending order. They can extend their math skills to unfamiliar numbers. And so this leads to two possible conclusions the researchers pointed out. I I read this in – they were speaking to the New York Times. They said that the birds and the mammals here, obviously, they've both got these number skills. The monkeys have them. The pigeons have them. And they either separately evolved the basic number skills, meaning the convergent evolution, two different evolutionary solutions to reach the same goal in different creatures. All right. Because ultimately, both creatures live in the same world, a world of fixed and movable objects of varying quantities. Yeah. And obviously, that plays into the survival advantage to be able to uh, to determine these differences. Yeah. Or if that's not the case, if it's not convergent evolution, separate solutions leading to the same conclusion – they must have gotten these number skills from their last common ancestor. As we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that last common ancestor between mammals and birds lived 300 million years ago. Yeah. So before so, the terror birds, yeah. before the dinosaurs, yeah. 300 million years ago with number skills. I mean, before the age of the dinosaurs, that's very creepy. <laughs> but I think we've got one that's even creepier, and that's – Theory of mind. Yes, and this is where I definitely think back to standing on one side of the glass and watching the ground hornbills and and looking into the eye of the ground hornbills as they walk up and and will often show off uh, like a dead mouse. They'll have it in their beak and they'll want to show it to me. Or uh, if they don't have a <laughs> really, dead mouse, you think so? They seem to be showing it off. Yeah, yeah. they want to show that that dead uh, mouse to me. And if there's not a mouse, they'll have a wood chip and they'll pick that up and want to show it to me. Wow. Um, but uh but to what extent is that hornbill actually 
could it possibly be perceiving me as an entity that is perceiving it? Yeah. This is where we get into theory of mind. And it's a pretty big deal in human cognition and the human experience overall. Theory of mind allows us to see the world or attempt to, often you know, quite poorly, through another person's eyes. Right. It allows us to attribute a mental state to are not only to ourselves, but to other entities. Yeah, and this is considered a, a, a crucial part of sort of human development. Like when children, at what age do children gain a theory of mind? When are they not just reacting to stimuli? When are they not reacting to, uh, to a lighting up toy and a human as if they're the same type of thing, but recognizing that a human has intentions and starting to imagine what the other human's intentions are. Yeah, and this is something we easily take for granted. I think it's important to note that when we say theory of mind, it itself is not a theory. Right. It is saying that our perceptions of other mind states, all we have is a theory of that individual's mind. Everyone yeah. in your life, from a stranger on the street to a, you know, a loved one you see every day, the best you have is a theory of what their mind state consists of. Right. And, uh, and I think a lot, there, there's some interesting studies out there that show that, that even people we've, we've known for a long time, our vision of their mind state isn't, is far from perfect. Uh-huh. It's just a version of who they are. And we use those in our, our, our calculations as we navigate our world. Yeah. Isn't that kind of strange? I mean, you, you think you live in a world of other people, but really you live in a world of what you imagine other people are like. Yeah. You kind of live in your own little, you know, matrix simulation of the world. <laughs> but, uh, but how about animals, right? Can animals do this? That's been one of the big questions. The degree to which non-human animals can possess theory of mind uh, remains an open question, but some studies suggest that ravens might have the gift. Wow. Yeah, most recently, a 2016 study, and this is the year, uh, published in Nature Communications, suggests that ravens possess a basic theory of mind. How on earth would they test for this? I mean, ah. how, how can you figure out if a raven knows that something else has intentions? Well, it comes down to this. Uh, you, you often hear this phrase thrown around, right? Do, uh, it's particularly in... Uh, in you know dramas uh, where there's a, a lot of deception, right? Does does he know that I know that he knows? Yeah, you know, it all comes down to a a complex game of hide and seek among the ravens, where they uh, the, where they are they're they're trying to hide and acquire pilfered bits of carrion. Great, yeah, carrion. They, yeah, so they gorge themselves on I don't know, you know like the eyeballs and, and whatever they can get from the, these dead animals. All the best bits. All the best bits. But there's still some nice nuggets there that they want to come back with later. So they tuck these into the throat pouches and they hide them away. Now, subordinate ravens. Wait, hold on. Just just to clarify, they don't hide them in their throat pouches. They take them in their throat pouch to hide them right, somewhere. Right. They just stick them in the throat, their throat pouch and then they're going to want to hide them in some external place yeah. later on. Like so a dog burying a bone. Exactly. Yeah. They want to create a, you know, a, just a hide. They want to find a hiding place for the good so they can come back. They want to bury that treasure. Now, Subordinate ravens will spy on their superiors to see where they're hiding the choice spoils. Oh, those sniveling little... Yeah, uh, because the the boss raven got the best parts. But the, here's the thing. The <laughs> boss raven didn't get, become boss raven by being a dummy. The boss raven knows that she's being watched, and she'll often employ various strategies and deceptions in order to throw off the others. So she, she practices deceit and trickery. Right. So she's doing things like... Uh, doing a quick burial. Like, I gotta bury this fast before anybody notices where I'm putting the goods. Makes sense. Or digging behind a visual barrier so they huh. can't quite see what she's doing. 
avoiding the hiding place after burial to avoid drawing attention to it. All right, so I'm going to bury it over here, but I'm going to stand over here because I don't want you to think that I'm guarding something precious. And then finally, this one is really key. She'll pretend to dig a hole, but keep the loot in her throat pouch until a better opportunity to hide it presents itself. Whoa. So I'm digging a hole, just pretending to bury it. So you'll think I buried it here. I'm going to do a little slide of beak and actually bury it over on this side. Now, this is interesting because you could look at all this and say, well, I don't know, maybe is, I mean, with a lot of these tests, you could say, is this just some kind of uh, instinctual behavior manifesting itself in a very complex way? And so you'd almost have to introduce un- unnatural scenarios to test and see, is this really, is this bird thinking flexibly or is it just carrying out some instincts? Right. Yeah. Is it just responding to visual stimuli or is this theory of mind? Well, that's what the researchers in this study set out to discover. So this 2016 study involved two experimental areas. Uh, one wall between them with a peephole for viewing the human researchers who brought them food and a small window, uh, which could be shut or open to make the other raven in the experiment visible. Okay. So uh, this w- was to test how they behaved when they could see their competitor and when they couldn't, and also how they factored in this peephole through which somebody else, human, might be viewing them as well. Okay. So they taught the birds to look through the peephole and spy on the humans as well. Afterwards, they uh, the the, uh, the birds indeed hid their food and acted suspicious, even when they had uh, they had only the peephole to contend with, with the uh, the window to the other raven shut off. Wait a minute. So they couldn't see the raven. They just knew that it was possible for something to look in at them. Right. So yeah. So basically, they're testing you know through three different things. How are they behaving when they know there's a raven there that could uh, see what they're doing? Yeah. How do they behave when there's nothing there that they're aware of? Uh-huh. And how do they behave when there's no visible raven, but there's the possibility that something else, perhaps this human, is viewing them as well? Wow. And they seem to infer that uh, someone could be watching and acted as if the possible watching entity might behave like another crow. So they attributed theory of bird mind to the unseen human. They thought the human might be coming to steal their carrion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they were they were, according to the researchers here, the argument here is that they are attributing theory of mind to the human. I just want to issue a disclaimer to any Corvids listening. (laughs) I don't want to steal your delicious eyeballs. Those eyeball treats, you earned them. They're all for you. uh, Prove me wrong is probably what they they would say back. (laughs) Okay, well, that's fascinating. And and if those uh, the interpretation of those results are indeed correct, that's uh, I don't know. That's something else. Yeah. I mean, of course, it makes sense because they uh, the Ravens from a very er early age, they have to engage in a uh, you know, a, a fairly uh, complex um, um, hierarchical group of friends and frenemies and different factions. Yeah. So they're like social birds. Yeah, they're instantly thrust into like a mini Game of Thrones scenario and they have to be able to survive in that environment. OK, well, there's another perhaps lighter example we could throw to, but that is also still pretty interesting, which is the fact that it might not be impossible to have a bird DJ your wedding. Yeah, you could uh, book uh, DJ Birdbrain or perhaps uh, DJ uh, Budgerigar. Budgerigar is uh, or the or basically the common pet parakeet, uh-huh. a vocal mimicking parrot species. The one you teach to say bad words. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, in a 2011 study published in Scientific Reports, a team of researchers trained eight 
budgerigars to perform isochronous, that means occurring at the same time, tapping tasks in which they pecked a key to the rhythm of audiovisual uh, metronome-style stimuli. So keep in, keep in time, keep in right. a beat. Exactly. And now this has also been observed in sea lions, rhesus monkeys, chimpanzees, and bonobos. Uh, in this case, though, the uh, the budgerigars, they seemed inherently inclined to tap at fast tempos, which have a similar time scale to the rhythm of their own natural vocalizations. And the ah. researchers suggest that the vocal learning might have contributed to their performance, which resembles that of a human. Now, that makes me uh, think about theories about the emergence of musical ability in humans. Mm-hmm. And if our musical ability is inherently tied to language... Yeah, yeah, there have been all sorts of interesting studies. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly thinking about those involving Neanderthals and the idea yeah. that they might have like sung instead of, of spoke. Oh, and yeah. That, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating material. Have you ever done an episode on the origins of music before? I know I have explored it some in past episodes, huh. but it's one of those where there's always new research coming out. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would love to re-explore it at some point. Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. Well, anyway... That's not the end. We, we should probably pretty much leave it off there, but that's not the end of the research into bird cognition. We just have to stop because there's so much. But there's also been research about uh, birds dis- uh, observing object permanence, like to what extent birds can still remember an object is present even if they can't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, for lots of animals, it seems like all that exists is what's in front of them at the moment. But can birds remember something's there even if it's removed from view? It looks like in some cases they probably can, though I think not all scientists agree on that one. Another interesting social result we've come across is that crows and ravens seem to be able to recognize when they're being treated unfairly. They can respond to inequity and the reward of treats and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there, there's also been some research into the metacognition of corvids, right? Yeah, this is a uh, metacognition is essentially thoughts about thoughts, thoughts about the limits of thought. Uh-huh. Um, and large build crows succeed uh, in retrospective, but fail in prospective meta memory tasks. So they, they haven't, according to some of the studies we're looking at here, they, they, they haven't quite pulled off like full scale metacognition, but they have limited uh, abilities there. Um, and to, to put this in perspective with other uh, animals, I've, I've read studies where, um, where rodents have, have demonstrated uh, possible metacognition. Huh. Okay, well, I think one of the takeaways from everything we've just been talking about is that there is just so much research on the Mm -hmm. uh, sophisticated cognition of birds that even if some of this research turns out to be misinterpreted or or refuted by future studies, there's so much of it that there's obviously some real phenomenon here. Yeah, so many of these are things that you see coming online with a young human child as their, you know, as their brain uh, uh, powers up. And then you see those same power ups taking place with the bird brain. And so we should look at the brain itself, I guess, because this comes back to the concept of cognition without a cortex. Uh, As we mentioned before, for a long time, neuroscientists thought that sophisticated cognitive powers only came from a neocortex, uh, also known as the neopallium, which is the most recent addition to the mammalian brain, the the powerhouse of higher human thought. It's, you know, the, the part of the mammal brain that gives us our real intelligent flexibility and ability to adapt to all kinds of environments and scenarios the topmost ice cream scoop 
Exactly. Now, uh, the cerebrum takes up most of the volume of the brain in both mammals and birds. And, and the cerebrum in both classes, uh, mammals and birds, can be divided into two regions. You've got the pallial region up on top and the subpallial region. And the subpallial region, that's ancient. That's uh, extremely similar in mammals and birds. Uh, can probably be traced back to a common ancestor more than 500 million years ago, like 535 million years ago. It's pretty similar between animals as different as, uh, and this is the example Gunter Kuhn and Bogniar give, Animals as different as humans and lampreys. <laughs> so, so this is clearly, this is, uh, what some people might call lizard brain kind yeah. of stuff. It's, it's deep, deep in there. It's one of the older parts of how your nervous system works. But then you've also got the pallium, the upper part of the brain, and that's, uh, the upper surface of the cerebrum. So it's got the, the cortex or things that are like the cortex, the hippocampus, uh, the pallial amygdala, the claustrum, and the olfactory bulb. And in the, uh, the pallial brain is where the major differences between mammals and birds show up. So in mammals, this region is dominated by what's usually called the neocortex. So I've read apparently some the neoness of the neocortex has actually been called into question in recent years. So maybe instead we should just call it something like the cortex or the six layered cortex. Um, but the bird's pallial brain doesn't have this cortex. Instead, it's got these little groups of things that have been called nuclear aggregations, which is a good name. And the question is, do birds have the equivalent to a cortex? Do they, do they have something that works like a cortex does? And what, uh, Gunter Kuhn and, uh, Bugniar conclude by looking at all of this recent research is that it seems to be, yeah, the cognitive power of the bird seems to be located in the avian pallium, which does a lot of the same work as the mammal cortex. And, uh, th- these are, these are similar brain structures, but the big question is, why are they doing similar work? Are they an example of convergent evolution, like we've talked about where Convergent evolution would be something, you know, one example would be like wings. You've got wings on bees, wings on bats, wings on birds. They obviously did not get these wings from a common ancestor that they shared. They separately evolved similar solutions to, hey, I need to fly. Recent findings say that we probably get some basic homologous structures from the common ancestor between mammals and birds, but that these structures continued to evolve in parallel, eventually converging on the the mind structures that we see today, cognition, intelligence, complex thought, problem solving, executive function. And uh, I one thing that seemed very interesting to me about this is to whatever extent this is an example of convergent evolution, it seems to apply to the study of machine cognition. Because when you look about at, at like uh, computers and, and you ask the question, can computers really think? Can a machine really think? Could an artificial intelligence program really be thinking if it doesn't have a brain like us? Well, if birds can think without having brains like us, why not other physical structures that give rise to information processing? Yeah, this just gets into the idea that perhaps uh, consciousness just is simply something that emerges from any significantly significantly complex system of information, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th- you you kind of can't say 
that there's a unique magical architecture in the mammalian brain that creates the phenomenon of thinking. If it looks for all we can tell, like birds can actually do a lot of the same stuff that we would think of as thinking. And maybe given different evolutionary circumstances, they might have been as intelligent or more intelligent than us. And so if there's nothing unique about the mammal brain that gives rise to thinking, why couldn't, you know, Descartes' internal protagonist, the one that says, I think, therefore, my, I am, be any type of physical architecture that gives rise to information processing? Maybe uh, a swarm intelligence and a swarm of ant-like aliens or mm-hmm. or a computer. It It really leads one to some strange conclusions about what intelligence is and where it emerges from physical reality. Indeed, indeed, it really it really forces you to, to to rethink what we think we know about uh, about intelligence and thought. Okay, well, I think we should come back and finish with that question we started with about the technological civilizations uh, in that alternative reality where the ascendant intelligent life form on Earth is avian rather than mammalian. If it's not primates, but it's birds that are the smartest creatures and create the the machines and the buildings and the cities and the social structures and everything we think of as intelligent civilization what would that look like how would it be different well i instantly when i when i think of sci-fi visions like ex- existing sci-fi visions of of intelligent avian species uh you know i instantly think to uh Flash Gordon, the Hawkman, uh, particularly Prince uh, <laughs> Prince Volton, uh, played by Brian Blessed in one of his uh, most uh, spectacular, one of his loudest roles, one of, of many loud roles over the years. You know, they still basically are they're just humans, right? They've got arms. Yeah. I mean, it gets down to the, the age old uh, reality that humans have looked to birds and we've we've envied them. But only for one thing. We just want the wings. We don't want the talons. I, yeah. We don't want the cloaca. We don't want any of the, <laughs> of the other stuff. We just want to fly. And so when we think of avian creatures and avian, uh, intelligent avian species, we tend to think of just people with wings. It, right? We want to have our cake and eat it, too. We want wings, but we don't want to give up the arms. Yeah, You've we got to choose. Yeah. That's one of the things that I've looked at in the past uh, with some of these hypo- this, uh, that one plastic surgeon in particular, uh, uh, Dr. Rosen, um, has argued that there's a way that you could turn the human arm into into a wing. But most people really, they don't want that. If they want to become a bird, they want to still have arms. Yeah, they want um, to be an angel, not a bird. Exactly, yeah, and most angels are depicted with, with arms. Um, in terms of, like, actual intelligent... Uh, you know, and more considerate ideas about what a, an avian, alien species might consist of or what they might think like. Um, the, the best example I've run, run across is in the second book of Richard K. Morgan's, uh, Takeshi Kovacs novels. The most uh, famous of which is, is Altered Carbon, which I understand is getting picked up by Netflix. The second book, Broken Angels, it introduces a long extinct or at least absent, uh, elder race referred to as the Martians, but they're only referred to as the Martians by humans, because that's where we first encounter their ruins. Oh, on um, Mars, you mean? Yeah, on Mars. Yeah. So the species in particular, they're avian, they're winged. Um, they disappeared from our galaxy at some point in the long past. They left behind all these advanced artifacts and a few functional items. But Morgan plays with the idea of a technological civilization that evolved from solitary, predator, predatory uh, avian creatures. So in their maps... 
the local settlement is always positioned at the center of the universe. Uh, so they seem to have existed in their most evolved state in a form of uh, you know, highly advanced and automated fiefdoms controlled by and consisting of a lone individual, uh, which is all kind of slightly, slightly hard to fathom. It's so different from how we think of civilization and technologically advanced civilizations working. But indeed, what, how would the model differ if the species was inherently solitary instead of social? I mean, would it even be possible? Uh, it, it's, it runs contrary to our, to our only example of evolved, uh, technological civilization. Yeah, it's just another way of highlighting exactly how deep our mammalian influences run. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we, we, things we think of as inherent to in- intelligence or inherent to civilization are really facts about mammals. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder how different things would be if it weren't mammals. Yeah. Though, you know, the whole idea about the, the creature positioning itself at the center of the universe, I mean, we all do that. It comes back to the whole theory of mind yeah. and how we're just, we all we, all we're doing is engaging with this sort of mental simulation of who we are, this idea of ourselves that may itself be flawed, and then all these various flawed ideas of what these other mammals in our lives are thinking. It's that very sense of imagination from which we uh, conjure up things like Howard the Duck. Oh, yes. Another great uh, spacefaring avian species. No, but Howard the Duck, he just had hands, didn't he? Did he? Yeah, I guess he was kind of like a cartoon duck, More right? failure of imagination. <laughs> Howard the Duck, why didn't he have wings instead of arms with fingers? Yeah. You know, they, they weren't quite – It was. this is not really science fiction, but the Skeksis in uh, The Dark Crystal. I think were, they had hands too, didn't they? They, they wheeled did. swords at each other. Yeah, they did, but they were uh, – they, they behaved uh, – I like the way that they, they behaved like bickering you know, oh, vulture yeah. creatures. They seemed, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their attitude was, seemed very avian. Yeah, they were essentially – well, they are a – their their culture embodies the scavenging impulse. Yeah. Like they're all squabbling over scraps. Yeah, yeah, and their 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 outfits and their environments are all just kind of a, a big piles of junk, really. I do love the Dark Crystal. It's uh, it's such a a magically non-human story. It is, yeah. For just the the entire thing, like like all the creatures, all the plants. It's just a completely alien environment, and it was made at just the right time. If you'd made it a little earlier. The uh, the practical effects wouldn't have been there to make it look as good as it as it does. Uh-huh. And if you but made it came it, before CGI, yeah, if you came a little later, they would have CGI the heck out of it. So it was it's a a movie that, a perfect movie that came out around at just the right time. So I actually got in touch with owner Gunter Kuhn, one of the authors of the Cognition Without Cortex paper, over email, and we had a brief exchange, uh, and he answered some questions very generously for us. So this whole interview will be posted on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, but we just wanted to talk about a couple of his answers here because I thought it was interesting. One of the things we asked him about was the difference between different species of birds in terms of cognition. Uh, specifically, I said... Uh, we're now learning how intelligent corvids and parrots are, but are the chicken and the pigeon probably a lot smarter than we thought as well? I'm just going to read uh, his answer here on this particular question. He says, it doesn't make much sense to talk about birds and mammals in general. It is much more useful to compare some groups of birds with some groups of mammals. There is practically no important difference in any cognitive repertoire between corvids and parrots on one side and primates on the other side. But obviously, it would be a bit unfair to compare a chicken and a pigeon with an ape. (laughs) 
But this is also true for mice and rats. So to put it in a bit unscientific way, chicken and pigeons are possibly comparable in many aspects with rats when it comes to cognition. That said, it is important to state that the cognitive differences between rats and monkeys on the on the one side and pigeons and corvids on the other side are often overestimated. Careful observations show that also chicken and chickens and pigeons, as also rats, achieve much higher levels of cognitive operations than often assumed. I thought that was interesting because it highlights that there might be just sort of like a general uh, lack of awareness we have about how smart all different kinds of species are, not just birds, but that we we under or overestimate the intelligence of animals across the board. Yeah, we we, it's very difficult, even in scientific settings, to set aside, um, you know, our, our human bias on these things. Another one of the questions he answered was uh, that I specifically asked what he thought the most impressive display of sophisticated cognition he'd seen in birds was. And uh, so he says, imagine you're sitting in front of a table full of tasty food and you're asked which of the many items on the table is the most delicious one. That's my situation now. <laughs> uh, he, j- just a feast of bird intelligence. <laughs> but uh, he says if you force him to give an answer, he says, I'd like to mention two points. The first is self-recognition in the mirror, as shown by magpies. Now, that was one of the ones we talked about and we found pretty interesting. But he says this finding possibly implies that magpies know about themselves and they share this kind of knowledge with chimpanzees and a few other ape species. The second aspect that I find fascinating is social cognition. We also talked about this one. Uh, he says, Corvids seem to know in uh, a lot of detail what other animals can know and what they can't know. So this is the theory of mind we discussed. Uh, he says, they also seem to have a certain understanding of the intentions of other corvids, and they possibly are able to at least anticipate how another bird is feeling in a certain situation. Just a few years ago, nobody would have thought that this was within the reach of a bird. Now, I want to stress that we ask a number of other key uh, questions related to the research here. Some of the uh, we ask him about some of the questions that arose in our coverage of the topic. Uh, but I do want to just touch on very briefly the the more science fiction oriented question that we asked him. Um, uh, we asked him about, uh, you know, we said if evolution had gone a different way, could avians rather than primates have become the dominant intelligence on planet Earth, even developing a technological civilization? What might that look like? And and I have to give him credit for for taking our bait. You know, they're not not every scientist out there is willing to play the the what if game <laughs> um, with interviewers, but uh, but, but I, he was game. I, I thought he had a very practical answer yeah. though. So he says, in principle, yeah, he, he thinks in principle you could, but he says. However, birds have a problem that all reptiles have. They are unable to construct big brains. Uh, this could be related to the fact that in reptile brains, and so also in bird brains, the forebrain is not divided into gray matter and white matter. In mammals, this division is very important, and the mammalian cortex can grow like a folded carpet, theoretically endlessly. In the reptile-slash-bird brain, the upper limit seems to be reached by a little more than a 100 grams. We haven't understood this point completely yet, but to be as smart as we humans are, birds possibly would need a couple of hundred grams. And as long as they're unable to come up with that, we rule this planet. So it's just mass. It's, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's all they lack, but we can still lord it over them. 
Indeed. So, hey, if you want to check out the rest of this interview, you can head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we will have the interview. If you're checking this out uh, within a week or two of this episode's publication, it's probably going to be on the front page somewhere. Yeah, Uh, we we also really want to thank Dr. Gunchikun for getting back to us. Uh, His answers were very interesting, and it was very generous of him to share his time and his thoughts. That's right, and we'll also include a link to this on the landing page for this episode. All right, so there you have it. Avian intelligence. We would love to hear from our listeners about this topic. Um, how do you feel about the mind of a bird? Do you have birds in your life? And if so, how do you objectively and subjectively um, view their intelligence? And if you're a science fiction fan or a fantasy fan, do you, have you come across any models of, of, of fictional avian intelligence, particularly avian intelligence uh, that in, you know involves the use of technology? Uh, if so, share those with us. We would love to hear about them. And if you want to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other recent episodes, you can always email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.